0: Welcome to the weekly Mission Red Bank podcast, helping the body of Christ build itself up together in love. So this summer, you guys are are working through the book of Acts, and um, the book of Acts is one long narrative. It's a long story, right? And... uh, This week we're looking at chapter six, but to to put that into context, I want to just jump back and quickly review where we've been. Acts begins at a moment of transition, right? So in the very beginning of Acts, we see that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and he's ascended to the Father. Now when he ascends to the Father, as Al preached a few weeks ago, when he ascends to the Father, that's actually really good news for us, because as he ascends, he sends the Holy Spirit to be with us. And the Holy Spirit is both God. Holy Spirit can be described a million different different ways. He's God. Holy Spirit is also the Spirit of Jesus. It's everything that makes Jesus who he is, is the Holy Spirit. And yet, Holy Spirit's also God. So it's a little bit confusing. But what we see in Acts chapter 2 is that the Spirit descends upon his people. And his people in that moment are kind of a small, ragtag group. But as he descends upon his people, those people then go out and begin telling everyone the good news. And the good news is this. It doesn't matter how badly you betrayed God. It doesn't matter how bad you've made your life. It doesn't matter how bad your mistakes are. Nobody is irredeemable to God. They stand there and they, stay in front of, they stand in front of the very people, the very crowds that just 40 days earlier had uh, falsely arrested and accused and beaten and killed Jesus. And they stand before that crowd and say, "He died for you, and you can be raised to new life in Him. You can be reconciled to the Father." And then it, it should come as no surprise then that um, thousands of people said, "I'm in." That's good news. You mean I can be forgiven even for killing Jesus? Yes, I would like that. I would like to be. Re- I would love to receive His grace and His new life. And so thousands of people. Become Christians, and then this community is described in these early chapters of, of, of Acts as almost a, a familial community. It's like a family, and so we read from Acts chapter two: all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Then in Acts chapter 4, which Al's already read for you in a previous week, but let me read it for you. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that their possession, their possession, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. So this not only sounds like a family, it sounds like a really, really great family. Spending time together, sharing as they had need, eating meals together, even going out into the temple courts, which is sort of going out and doing outreach together, reaching out to people who don't yet know God together. This is a beautiful family, a family that we'd all like to be a part of. And that's why... That's why the passage we hit today is so heartbreaking and seems to come out of nowhere. Here's what we read in the passage that Al asked me to speak into today. Chapter six. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. Because their widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So what we see here is the, the church is a family. But here we see some real family dysfunction. Specifically here, we see some underlying prejudices begin to service. Um, and these prejudices are not invented by the church; they predate the church, right? Because during biblical times, there's this long-standing hierarchy among Jewish people within within their own ranks, within Jewish people. And one of the distinction distinctions was that between Hellenistic Jews, which are Jews that no longer reside or live full time in the Promised Land. Of Judea, Jerusalem, that area. Those those Jews that no longer live there that were called Hellenistic Jews, which is a way of saying Greek Jews. In other words, they're in the Greco-Roman world. They're part of the world beyond Jerusalem and Judea. And then there's the Hebraic Jews, those Jews who have stayed in the Promised Land. Now, what's really hard about this is that the Hellenistic Jews often didn't choose to be Hellenistic Jews. They 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 were some of them taken away militarily and replaced in other places all around the Roman Empire. Some of them certainly chose to move away for whatever reason, but the Jewish people who live in Jerusalem and in Judea and that part of the world in the Holy Land, they look down upon the Hellenistic Jews as essentially not being real Jews, not being Jewish enough. And so this, this underlying prejudice that exists in the first century within Jewish culture has now made its way into the early church culture. And what we see here is that the, Hellen- the, the Hebraic Jews, those who live in Jerusalem, the, those, those Jewish people who are living in the Holy Land, even though everybody's supposed to be taking care of one another, they've decided to not take care of the Hellenistic widows in their midst. It's just flat-out prejudice. If they had different colored skins, you'd call it racism. That's what's going on here. And there is a warning in this for us, which is that if we blindly accept the cultural narratives and the cultural attitudes of the culture outside of the church... If we don't question those narratives or those attitudes outside of the church, they can actually make their way right into the church, right? In other words, the church didn't create this issue, but the church also didn't identify this issue until it had become a problem. They didn't address it. So that's a warning to us. So how does the church respond to this crisis? Well, now we move to verse 2. So the 12, the 12, uh, it's a proper name for the apostles, the, the key leaders in the church. The 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Uh, they sound a little embittered there. Honestly, <laughs> I was thinking about this. I don't know if they're just worn out, but like somebody's basically saying, hey, these widows aren't being taken care of. And uh, the way this reads is, I don't think how it was really uh, written. I don't think they were like, we well, can't wait on tables. I don't think that was their, their art in this. <laughs> Quit complaining. No, that's not what they're saying. Because the next sentence clarifies. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. By the way, if you want to know how leaders need to be chosen within the church, those are the two first requirements full of the spirit, full of wisdom. So choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So here we see prejudice, a real crisis within the church being combated through um, essentially infrastructure. The leaders here called the 12 recognize that their leadership needs to be now dispersed out into the people, into processes, into organization that will pick up the slack from what they can no longer handle on their own. They realize that for the family to be healthy, their leadership needs to be pushed out from them to other people and other plans and systems. It's funny because when I was a young Christian, I used to imagine that the church... The early church, this church in Acts, when I was a young Christian, I used to imagine that this church in Acts was essentially like a giant hippie commune, right? Like they were all just hanging out together. They just like shared food. Nobody had any possessions. They're all giving each other everything and everybody just magically got along because the Holy Spirit was so good. Everybody just got along. There was no conflict. Uh, There's no leaders. It was just a flat structure. It was organic, And then I realized at some point, like, I was actually adding my own prejudice to the reading of scripture, right? Because Americans, we, we really love this idea of uh, everything being flat. Like, I remember as a young man, I just didn't like the idea of structure. I thought that structure equaled evil, right? Like, I thought that you give me boundaries, you're actually holding me down, you're holding a good man down. Like, But the reality here isn't, the reality we see in the early church isn't some sort of hippie commune. Actually, the reality we see is that there are 12 people clearly in leadership. This is hierarchical from the very beginning. This wasn't like a democracy from the very beginning, actually. In fact, they didn't choose these 12. Jesus did. And we remember that In the Bible, Jesus refers to his leadership structure as a what? A kingdom. Kingdoms aren't democracies. But more than just not democracies, like I had this really naive, and now I'm realizing it was an unhealthy, unhealthy, naive sort of idol that I had made about the... The more spiritual we are, the less infrastructure we need. And it's just not true. That's naive. That's not how God set up anything in the Old Testament. That's not how Jesus sets up his church in the New Testament. And what we see here is the 12 are clearly in leadership. And when they see this critical problem emerge, they respond by doing what? Adding another layer of infrastructure. Raising up more leaders. And not only do they raise up more leaders, they raise up more leaders and essentially give them a pretty, a pretty specific job description. It wasn't just that they were like, hey, you're full of spirit. You're full of spirit and you're full of wisdom, so just do your thing, man. Just do your thing, Tim. <laughs> no, they're like, no, you're full of spirit. You're full of wisdom. Um, and actually, let me tell you your thing. You need to make sure that the Hellenistic Jews are fed. Let me tell you your thing, right? And so... It's not some sort of loosey-goosey thing that I at one time imagined it was. This is fairly, fairly structured. And again, the response to the crisis is more structured. And so this brings us to this really interesting conclusion. Contrary to what we may sometimes think, leadership and organization are not contrary to authentic, healthy community. No, they are necessary for healthy, authentic community to thrive, right? When infrastructure, so infrastructure, leadership must grow actually in proportion to the body growing. I I have to admit that we've learned this the hard way. I've learned this the hard way. We've learned this the hard way for sure. In the mission, in the early days, we grew like crazy, and then very quickly, our infrastructure couldn't support that. We didn't have enough small group leaders to disciple all the new people who were coming, right? We didn't have, we had like a very part-time, turned out terrible bookkeeper, um, right? So literally, the bigger the Mission Red Bank grows, the more bookkeeping the Mission Red Bank's going to need. The bigger the Mission Red Bank grows, the more small group leaders it's going to need, right? It just makes sense. And so infrastructure grows. For a healthy church to exist, infrastructure grows in proportion with the population's growth, And every time that we've seen moments where things are stabilized in this way, every time we've seen moments when there are enough small group leaders, when there are, is enough bookkeeping, when there is enough administration, when there is enough people helping with children's ministry, when there are enough people helping at the Sunday services, when there are enough people playing music, when there are enough people helping, every time that moment happens, guess what happens? We grow. <laughs> These things work together. They're totally related. And, not, and, and, when, and when we have enough leadership and infrastructure in place, not only do they grow, but they grow in a healthy way, right? So in our passage, deacons specifically are raised up. And throughout the rest of the scriptures, we see that many other type of ministers are raised up until eventually there becomes this really clear picture. As the church grows, as the church matures, you go from 12, and then you have these deacons, and as the church matures, more types of ministers are raised up. So that at one point, as the community really grows and matures, they conclude this. There's a priesthood of all believers. That every single person that's a part of the church is a minister. Every single person helps out. And I love how closely that this progression that we see in the New Testament is being mirrored in the progression in the maturity I'm seeing at Mission Red Bank. Because the ministry here isn't just carried by Father Al, right? Never has been, right? Because from the very earliest days, there was, there was a launch team. And from the very earliest days, Al's wife, Heather, has done quite a bit, right? And from the very earliest days, you had Caleb and Katie, his kids, doing quite a bit, right? Right? But more than that, over time, God raised up Diane. Anne as deacons. They've been ordained as deacons. And more recently, recently, people like Heather and Jared and Rachel and Tim have been raised up. Amy has been raised up. And all of these people who have been raised up into these sort of minister positions, pastor positions, they have surrendered their lives to the Lord for what? For the equipping of the saints. In other words, pastors here, just like pastors there, they don't exist to do all the ministry. They exist to equip you to do the ministry. They equip you, all of you, for the work of belonging and growing and serving and going. If those are strange terms for you, it just means you're new here because about a month ago, Father Al did a four-week series about belonging, growing, serving, and going. I really encourage you to get uh, the recordings of that. You can just ask Al. He'll tell you who to talk to about getting those recordings because I'm sure he doesn't know how to get them. But he can tell you who to ask to get them. Um, There are so many people serving here, people serving on the mission Mission Red Bank advisory team, people serving in the children's ministry, people serving in worship, people serving in music. There are people who lead mission communities or small groups. There are people that help with the belong retreats. I'm so excited. There's 40 plus people going to one in August. Let's see another 40 get signed up for October. Because that's where you're going to hear about how you can be equipped to do this ministry. You all are becoming a multi-dimensional family of God, a fellowship of missionaries, the people who reveal Jesus and his kingdom in this neighborhood, in this city, and in the world. The easiest way to think of it is this. The Mission Red Bank is a sailboat, not a cruise ship. Now, I've never been on a sailboat, okay? But from what I understand, when I watch movies and stuff, It seems like everybody has to do stuff on the sailboat, okay? It seems like it takes a lot of people, especially a big sailboat, right? A big sailboat where all of you all fit. It takes a lot of people to make that thing work. Somebody is scrubbing the deck. Somebody else is lifting the sails. Somebody's, I don't know, cutting the line. I don't know if that's a thing. We'll just make up stuff. Yeah. (laughs) All right? So somebody's making repairs. Everybody has a job on a sailboat. Except for the passengers. There are passengers on the boat. And if you're new here, or if you don't yet have a job, that's what you are. You're a passenger. You're a passenger. And there's nothing wrong with being a passenger for a while. Everybody else is actually there to serve you as a passenger. But here's the thing. You won't really... Know what it's like to be a part of the mission Red Bank until you become a member of the crew. You you won't experience the fullness of this community until you become a member of the crew. That we all play a role in making this sailboat continue to move forward. Then imagine for this thing to keep growing, it means the ship's going to have to be enlarged, and that means there's going to be more jobs to do. But just know... If you can't identify in the way in which you serve, that's okay, I guess, <laughs> especially if you're new. But it means you're a passenger. I would really encourage you to move from being a passenger to a crew member. Because that's how this whole thing can stay healthy. And again, if you want to know how to do that, sign up for the blong retreat. So how does this passage end? After they get through this crisis, we get to verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. I love how this passage concludes. The word spread and they grew. Notice that they didn't grow because they're a a community of perfect people doing perfect things. A friend of mine runs a church. You can steal this mantra. I'm going to steal it. This friend of mine runs run this church, and he says, the only rule of this church is that there are no perfect people. Yeah. There are no perfect people. And that does two things when he says that. It first invites those in who know there aren't perfect, and it actually invites those out who think they are. Because <laughs> both are equally unhealthy. <laughs> there are no perfect people. And this church is certainly not a perfect church that we're reading about in the Scriptures, Right? But they grew because their leadership and their infrastructure broadened to expand their capacity. And they grew because people bought in and they stepped up. And so my hope for you is that like our early brothers and sisters, you will continue to grow together into the people that God has created you to become. My hope is that you will not only want the church, but you will be the church. And my hope for you is that your story is like that of the early church, that your story would echo that of this verse, that the word of God may spread and the numbers of disciples in Red Bank would increase. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. You've been listening to the Mission Red Bank podcast. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to know more about Mission Red Bank or have questions about what you've heard today, you'll find us on Facebook. Grace and peace to you, and may God's blessings surround you.